the road to success is most likely to be kind of a messy one. So today we talk about, in episode number 23, his royal Bachness. Bachness. We're going to have a special guest, professional singer Martha McLaurin from the UK, and our composer profile, obviously, on Johann Sebastian Bach. This is Early Music Monday. So, after hearing some feedback about Early Music Monday, the podcast, and kind of going back and listening to old episodes, I realized that I'm kind of boring. Which is really weird, because when I talk about early music and things that I'm passionate about, I usually end up, like, yelling. Because I just get so excited, I can't handle it! Well, sorry. See? But... I think when I press the record button and I'm in the studio by myself and I'm really close to this really new microphone, I get into that kind of uh, audiobook reading mentality, but as if I was reading like techniques on how to sleep deeper. Today we're going to talk about lulling yourself to sleep by talking about renaissance music that's basically what it kind of felt like and i just like panic and so i can't be myself so today it's really scary because no one's here listening but i'm gonna try to talk about bach and early music some of these concepts the way i talk to my wife about it when i hear something cool i freak out and this like 12 year old kid comes out in me because i am a child and, but I think it's, uh, it's more genuine to who I am. And I think it'll, it'll make things a little bit more interesting. And I don't know, look out because it's about to get real. So for episode 23, my first, my first thought was, well, well, my first thought was when, after my interview with Martha, she's amazing, by the way, I can't wait to, to play that interview for you. It's going to be uh, you're going to learn a lot, and it's really cool to talk to high-profile people who are really successful and be like, hey, I know them. Um, it's like meeting a famous person, and it, it really is. In the choir world, she's a legend. Um, but And then she mentions how she loves singing Bach. And, so, and then with episode number 23, you think of, I mean, obviously, the first thing that comes to everybody's mind with the number 23 is Michael Jordan, because obviously everyone loves basketball. I don't care what country you live in. It's an amazing sport. I mean, hockey is better. Ice hockey. I can't, but, you know, there's going to be several hashtag unpopular opinions going on in this episode, and just don't. Don't at me because because I will stand by it. Okay, so how many movies have you seen? Movies or books or like TV shows, or like based on a real person's life? And you see, I again, I think of hockey or sports. You think of the movie Miracle, 
and uh, the U.S. versus the Soviet Union in hockey, 1980. And the United States beat the undefeated Soviet Union. It, it, and it, that movie makes me cry every time. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Every time I just break down. I can't handle it. Same with all sports movies. That's what gets to me. Anyway, the everyone's like, I well, maybe it's just me, but I catch myself thinking, man, I wish I was on that team. And really, I just want the fame and glory at the end, but I don't really want to have been on the team when the coach makes them skate lines until they're all basically passing out and puking their guts out. And their practices, man, he was brutal on them. He was so intense. Like, it was not an enjoyable journey. But that's what it takes. Michael Jordan, cut from basketball in ninth grade. He had to work so, so, so freaking hard. LeBron James worked so hard to be the best basketball player. And again, we talked about this with grit. But everyone who's successful has worked insanely hard to get there. People don't want to do that part. People just want the the end, the glory part. Like, man, to have box career. To have box career when I was doing research for this, it sounds kind of terrible, actually. <laughs> like, yeah, anyway, we're going to get into some of the details, but box career sounds not so fun. So his royal heirness, Johann Sebastian Bach, um, now I, even though I named it his royal airness, I just did, okay, unpopular opinion number one, I, this is going to be bold, again, don't at me, but Michael Jordan might not be, in my opinion, the best basketball player who ever lived. I'm wincing, waiting for the blow. I I think he's one-dimensional. This has nothing to do with Renaissance music, but I think he was a one-dimensional player. I think LeBron James is much more versatile. He's kind of a, a whiner about fouls, but every person on the planet is in basketball because the refs are so inconsistent. Anyway, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. The point is whatever. But Bach is often kind of like Michael Jordan, considered like the best composer, the GOAT. And there's good reason for that. I happen to like Mozart better, just in terms of personal taste. But there's a lot to Bach that's pretty extraordinary. Not exclude like one of those definitely being his grit. He even said, this is a quote from Bach himself, I've had to work hard. Anyone who works just as hard will get just as far. So if he composed 52 cantatas in one year, that's one per week. A cantata in the Baroque time was not this like short little piece. It was huge. Most of them were accompanied by strings and voices and really complex counterpoint and fugues. Fancy word for a cannon or a round. And it, it's like so comp the music is fairly complex. So he's pumping out one of those per week. Like I think I mean again, I'll equate it back to Miracle. How many times did they run those plays? How many free throws did Michael Jordan shoot? That's the part that nobody wants to do. They just want to be at the end. But they would never be at the end. They 
there is no end if you don't do the grit part. So now everyone talks about box genius. There's a concert poster I saw just like a year or so ago. It was like Bach the genius. And while that may be true, I also think, though, that um, in, in the research that I did for this episode, there's so much to Bach's life that, that nobody ever talks about. Um, and just to full disclosure, a lot of my research and a lot of my info comes from the research that was done um, by John Elliott Gardner. John Elliott Gardner conducts the Monteverdi Choir in England and is no like he has become the authority on Johann Sebastian Bach, Bach, and Mozart as well, but um, particularly Bach. And he's done a lot of really, really, really in-depth research into Bach's personal life as well and his personal life before all the fame and the genius. And he talks about, in a lot of, I, I read and listened to and watched several interviews with him and different organizations, and he says several times about how, for whatever reason, in the 20th century and the 19th century, historians have kind of watered down his, they've watered down his biography. It's kind of like, They've turned him into a saint, not in terms of like his the purity of his character, but in someone who's like this is Bach is pure and he was always genius and he was perfect and he was dull and he was boring and he was a quote fuddy dead, to quote a professor of mine, which you know there's some like glimpses into that part of his personality, but really. The dude had anger management issues like none other, and he had a wacko childhood. So he grew up in a an area that was riddled, and at you know these schools that were he was a chorister at a school, but they were riddled with gang violence. It's like straight out of Compton type stuff. Boys in the Hood, Eminem. You know, take your pick of of any sort of uh, artist or movie or something that where you're going to school in a really rough environment and there's gang violence. And his classmates got beaten a lot. I mean, talk about, <laughs> well, I don't know. It, it's such a foreign concept nowadays, but just picture like, you mess up your math homework and you get the paddle like dead poet society you know he just assume the position wham and that's the environment bach grew up in but they like teamed it with this religious fervor and it's like okay you are going to hell whack you're gonna be eternally damned whack your life is going to be a life of fire and brimstone whack I didn't know you worshipped Satan. Whack! Well, you can imagine that over and over and over and over again. <laughs> it's amazing these people were functional as adults. And one of the choir masters was fired and was deemed a, the plague of the school 
for his behavior and treatment of students. So if that's the standard of students getting beaten and threatened with eternal damnation, and then this guy gets fired on top of it, man, I can't even imagine how bad that is. It's like the all the news reports of the, the pedophile teacher who gets fired or the teacher stealing money so he gets fired. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. He sloughed school a lot. Slough, that's a weird word. I don't know what you all call it. Here in Utah, the students call it slough. I went to high school in Kansas. They called it ditching. Slough, to me, sounds like you're like tripping into a giant pool of cotton candy. But he sloughed or skipped school all the time. He had two, Bach had 258 absences of school, from school, over a three-year span. Man, and it makes you think, like, these kids, these students that that we all teach, whether they're private students, whether they're semi-professional that you're the conductor over, whether they're your own children, whether they're students at the school you teach at, it doesn't really matter whether they're through kindergarten all the way through college students, but there might be more going on. And I know we talk about that a lot, but there might be more going on that causes them to miss school so much. And they also might be, like Bach, secret geniuses who develop genius later. So in John Elliot Gardner's research and in his book, um, there's no direct evidence about this, but there's some really strong inferences made based on quotes and firsthand accounts that Bach could have been straight out of German juvie, a reformed thug. You know, they were they were chasing girls and drinking and smashing windows and all kinds of hooligan-ish stuff. So as he reforms and gets into, like, studying music and things, the research is there. It's really easy to find, like, straight-up, you know, Wikipedia articles about, you know, he studied here, and then he worked at this chapel, and then he worked. Those details are okay, but those are, again, kind of boring to me. So I just kind of leave those off to the wayside. So something, again, to me that's more fascinating is who he was as a person because there's not a lot of really hard evidence And there's a lot of inferences we have to make based on the research that's available. So he's a really contradictory in nature. Um, Like I said, he had anger management issues, but then he had a great capacity for tenderness. Maybe he was bipolar even, but it just sounded like he had a hot temper. So like one example of this is when (laughs) he beat up he got in a fist fight and drew a sword on a bassoonist in the orchestra. I first heard this story as like, there's no way that's real. But he goes, he called, first of all, okay, well, let's back up first. So put ourselves in Bach's shoes. He's 20 years old. He has an extraordinary gift and talent for music. So he kind of gets it more than most people. And it comes to him faster than most people, pretty much everybody. He's put in charge as his job to train this kind of, uh, I would describe him almost as delinquent 
class of musicians who were all older than him. So they don't really respect him. I just picture like all of the movies, like the School of Rock when Jack Black first walks in and the kids are like just doing whatever, lounging about. They're like throwing chalk at each other. They're using their flute to poke each other in the eyeball. They're trying to like replace the strings. The trumpet's pulled apart. They're hitting each other. Obviously, that's a hyper hyperbole, but that's what it feels like, I guess. And this bassoonist messed up this passage that Bach wrote. And again, Bach didn't have any patience for people not as good as him. And he called, okay, now I'm going to get censored, but I, I have to say it on the air. Otherwise, you won't understand the full gravity of the insult that Bach hurled his way. Uh, I should have marked this episode explicit, so if you have tender ears, now's the time to plug them. Bach called him a a nanny goat bassoonist. Oh my gosh. Which actually was very insulting back then. It's kind of hilarious now. You nanny goat bassoonist, except it would have been German. You nanny goat. I can't do the accent. Okay, anyway. And... This, like, really ticked off the bassoonist. So later, Bach's walking home with his cousin, and this dude is waiting with his gang in the alleyway. And as Bach walks by, he proceeds to call Bach, oh my, the language. Come on, guys, language. So filthy. You dirty dog. And then he begins hitting him with a stick. Bach gets infuriated and pulls out a dagger because his gang, this guy's gang member friends had swords. This is like a duel to the death. Nowadays, you'd be like, yo, drop the gun or something. But man, they like pulled out his sword. The guy's hitting him with a stick. Bach kind of got bested, which is really sad. It would have been way cool if Bach kicked his trash. But I guess he did hurl the meaner insult. The nanny goat thing is, man, such harsh language. My goodness. But that was Bach's anger management. And you know, he went to the, you know, yeah, his bosses, basically his employers, and they were like, hey, look, just be nicer, please, and do this, and just be patient, and those sort of things. But that... That illustrated Bach's temper problem, which is rather intense. But and he he just had this over and over again through his whole life. He had this just antagonistic kind of personality, where you know he gets passed over for a job, so he goes and takes another job, and then that and then that uh, kind of uh, royalty figure puts him in jail for a little bit or whatever for being antagonistic and. You just see his, like, conniving, sarcastic. I think of my brother who just, like, I love my brother to death, and he's amazing and a really nice person. But if he doesn't like what you're doing, he has no problem telling you. I was at a hockey game, and, well, I was playing, and apparently there was this, like, 14-year-old kid being just a idiot, cheering for the other team and being obnoxious and annoying and, insulting so my brother just like looks over at him just like dude shut up 
Like, I had no problem. I pictured that's Bach. So I was like, well, what's your problem? What's your problem? So Bach has this, what John Elliott Gardner calls this um, fault, this fault line right down the middle of his personality. So because he also had great care for his children, he had 12 children that lived and out of 20. So he had 20 kids and he married his cousin. That's a, that's a whole other story and doesn't fit in with our podcast. But so he's very complex. And so I just want to, John Elliott Gardner in this interview talks about Bach. And the thing that I, I want to, because despite all of this adversity and these kind of antagonistic exchanges and all this stuff, John Elliott Gardner describes Bach of like the interview asks, well, what, what was he like? So what, in the end, if you knew Bach, what was he like? And John Elliott Gardner said, convivial, cantankerous, remote, present, full of humor, but deeply serious. All dichotomies, but a great guy to go and have a beer with. (laughs) So like, uh, just so complex. And that, you can see that in his music. The whole point is, is his personality comes in his, like comes in his music. You can get to know Bach through how he writes. Had this great rhythmic drive, but happens to be really, really, expressive and poignant at the same time really complex um it's just it's amazing so this is i want to read this quote to word for word from john elliott gardner because it's really cool expressing how box music contains box personality so he says when asked about examples in box music that reflect his personality he says there are quite a few instances in the cantatas but they're not that well known i can give you one instance in a piece that is very very well known and that's the b minor mass where i think that really applies in the credo there is a this monumental chorus confiteor unum baptisma i believe in the universal baptism and the resurrection of the dead is the english translation and Bach starts off in a really good, solid, Lutheran, card-carrying fashion by inserting a cantus firmus, a sort of almost plain song statement, in the basses, followed in stretto, which uh, means uh, lengthened out uh, rhythmically, with the altos and then in the tenors. And you think, oh, this is a really major ex cathedra statement. And so, and so it is until the point when the music seems to crumble and simply dwindles and the tempo slows down. These great grider-like, or girder-like proclamations cease and the music enters into a sort of twilight zone full of dark modulations. And a searching quality enters in the music to the point where you don't know which direction you're going to move in. There are extreme insecurities of harmonic movement and it feels at that moment that Bach himself is saying to himself and allowing us to share his momentary doubts as to whether there is going to be a life beyond our earthly existence. 
Only at the last moment is there a scalar descent in the bass line, and suddenly there's this eruptive chorus with trumpets and drums. Quote, and I look for the resurrection of the dead, et expecto resurrectionem mortuorum. You thought I was going to say expecto patronum, didn't you? Anyway, back to John Elliott Gardner's words. And suddenly there is a sprint to the line, and it finishes in a flourish, and that's it. The impressiveness of that jubilant chorus, which is so affirmative, would I think be a lot less if it hadn't been for the transitional patch of murky self-doubt that comes before it. And I think that's something that humanizes Bach the man to us, makes us feel that he too had his doubts and his wobbles. Um, man, that is so cool to me. And I, when you when you read stuff like that and you hear it in the music, all of a sudden the music comes to life and it's like this music is life you have these moments of adversity these moments of despair self-doubt worry but then you know power beyond our own helps us get through that and we are able to triumph because of that higher power and we look back and see that really the only reason why it's great is because we had to fight through the the crap first And you see that in sports, you see that in modern pop music, you see that in art, you see that in architecture, in literature, in business, in science. You see it all over the place because that is life. Bach is life. And that, that movement of the B minor mass really shows that. So I just think that there's so many great lessons to be learned, not just in, cool, now I know more about Bach, or whoa, he had anger problems. But now when you listen to his music, it's it's different. You, you can find those little moments, not in the B minor mass, in some of his other works or whatever. And when you go to a concert, you're like, oh, Bach again, Bach again, really. And uh, But it's when you do that, when when you realize that, there really is something special to his Bachness. And uh, it's because he fought through those things and he fought till his dying day um, to be the best that he could be. And that is Bach. So we'll turn now to our interview with Martha McLaurinin. She has a very, very impressive resume sings solo work and ensemble work over in the UK. She sings with Tenebrae. um, She's really well known in the choir world for her solo on The Drowned Lovers, um, which Tenebrae performed in one of their virtual concerts recently and is on one of their CDs and uh, has done lots of opera work, sings in Ifa Giolini as well. Really, really amazing uh, vocalist. I had the privilege to share the stage with her as part of BYU Singers when Tenebrae came and did Handel's Messiah with us, and she was the alto soloist. And I just sat there and I was like, holy crap, is this real? She's really making that sound? And yes, this is very, very real. And uh, such a nice, like, just a lovely person. So we go now to our interview with Martha McLaurinin. Well, um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know that even though 
things are still kind of locked down that it's still pretty busy and we're no thanks for having me it's nice to talk about music if we can't make it so <laughs> yeah exactly and and i think i think um i don't know i i've been really early music kind of well not kind of it changed my life in a weird way it sounds really kind of weird to say that but it was kind of like I was listening to this Dufai piece and I was like why does no one do this and so I was doing my master's work and then I was like hey I'm gonna start this choir and so it kind of like so these conversations to hear everyone else's perspective really gives me an idea of how to apply it and and especially with singers because again a, a short little backstory again is I was not very good at singing during my undergrad and I failed voice lessons for my final recital. So I had to stay in college an extra semester to like retake less. And then when I got into my grad work in conducting, I kind of figured it out. I was like, whoa, I, wow, why why didn't I get it earlier? And so (laughs) to talk with singers and to kind of put those two worlds together is something that I'm really passionate about and I think is so fascinating. And as conductors, I think a lot of the times we're not quite as attuned to the singer's perspective as we should be, at least in America. And and I think that that's really helpful to always be in touch with what are the singers thinking? What are the singers feeling? What are the singers? Absolutely, yeah. Because they're they're the, the instrument you know, yeah. just kind of, mm-hmm. we're just kind of like keeping everyone together, right? So, yeah. so, yeah, yeah. so I'd love to hear the story to start of how you got into singing and and what motivated you to make that your career. Yeah. Um. So I, it's a slightly odd one for me, I guess. I I um. When I went to school, there wasn't really any music. There was no no school choir, no school orchestra, nothing like that at all. You know, they had one less than a week of classroom music, but the guy didn't really want to be there and it, and it yeah the music at school was a bit non-existent right. um and I I didn't really sing as a as a kid I mean I, I went to church but it was more of a kind of a more of a kind of happy clappy tradition than the great British choral tradition I wasn't introduced to that till much much later right. um yeah. so I, I it was a musical household my mum is a, a school music teacher so oh. music was always in the background and she did some uh, instrumental teaching at home so there was there was you know I was surrounded by music um and I I played the violin I was lucky I, I was unlucky with my music at school but I was very lucky in that there was an amazing guy um who's who ran a brilliant youth orchestra where I lived oh cool so I used to play violin and viola and I'd 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 practice those because I I think mostly because I enjoyed the kind of social side of of going on a Friday evening to see friends and and yeah, of course <laughs> Yeah, and 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 the the kind of the the collaborative nature of making music. I never used to practice piano. I wasn't interested in being in a room stuck on my own. Violin and viola, I I worked at because I I enjoyed I enjoyed it being a team game. Yeah. Um, and a friend of my dad, when I was thirteen, a friend of my dad had a son who was in the national youth choir, and we went to a concert because uh, it was near where we lived. Mm. And this this friend suggested to my dad that I ought to audition for the national youth choir because I played the violin. To this day, I see no logic whatsoever in obviously. that suggestion. <laughs> like, obviously. 
<laughs> yeah, I was a bit bemused by that one, but then, but then, um, I think my mum set me up with an audition, which confused me slightly, but thought, well, all right, I'll go along, having never had a singing lesson in my life. And I was, to be honest, I was pretty rubbish actually. And I can only, I can only imagine that they saw potential in me because they, they let me in, um, and off I went to a national youth training choir course. I, so I grew up in Somerset, southwest, um, in the oh. southwest. Um, and the first course was up in Yorkshire, way up in the northeast. I mean, I suppose these distances compared to the states are nothing, but but it felt like a long a long way. Yeah, sure, <laughs> <back then>. sure. <laughs> so yeah. went up and was terrified to go on this residential course for right. seven days away from home, longest time ever away from home. Yeah. Um, but just absolutely fell in love with it on on arrival. I, um, it's my first. I still remember the music we sang that course. Actually, it was things like. Lottie, Crucifixes, Stanford, Beati, Quorum Via, um, some spiritual arrangements, some arrangements, some pop stuff as well. Um, but yeah, just kind of, all over. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, but mind mind blown by it, and completely yeah. fell in love with it. And yeah. um, so so from the age of thirteen, twice a year, I would go off on these on these courses for National Youth Choir and and make music with fantastic people, and, yeah. and started alongside my violin and viola stuff started having scrapped piano i was not interested in that i wish i had been big regret um, <laughs> you're like oh crap yeah. but, <laughs> but, yeah, but replaced piano lessons with with singing lessons um yeah. and then and, and I, I guess i guess from 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 relatively early on i knew i wanted a career in music i i from yeah from you start looking around at university type stuff at about 17 and and i knew i wanted to go to music college um, I yeah. knew I wanted my, my career to be in singing because it's the thing I I loved the most, but I had absolutely no idea what that might look like or how mm. to make that happen, really. Right. Um, I had various teachers at, at, at sixth form tell me that I should go to university and get a, an academic degree because my, my brain would rot at music college. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I ended up ignoring them completely. It was it was that wonderful um, youth orchestra conductor who was also my violin teacher, who in the end at the pub actually one night just said, Mark, yeah. you, you know what you want to do. Yeah, go and do, do it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so went off to music college um, with a name, I suppose, I suppose, I don't know about in the States whether it's different, but over here, most music colleges are very much aimed at, at opera. Oh, um, that's kind of the end game. Um, in terms um, of the vocal like track versus the instrument yeah. and in terms yeah. of the kind of career that they want you to that yeah. they think they're training you to to follow um that's and... definitely sim mirrored over here okay and, and yeah. either, either opera or university teaching right all oh, right okay the, interesting the main two yeah. that they right the university track will get vocal performance majors to kind of follow so yeah that's really similar yeah, no, so I was they were I was being pushed into that, and and to be honest, as I, I'm um, I love being flexible with my voice, and I and when I haven't been on an opera stage for a while, I I do miss it, but I I don't like the lifestyle of being on the road lots there, and right. I I I don't know I at, at college everybody um everybody advised against anything choral actually, really? saying it can, yeah saying it can hold you back and 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 you shouldn't try and blend with everybody else and just focus on what you're doing yourself and and I ended up just ignoring them completely actually um because <laughs> right <laughs> yeah because I, I knew I loved it I knew I loved the the collaborative nature of music making which right. you know there's also obviously collaboration in opera and all the rest of it but sure. I, I knew I knew that it was it was when I was at college I realized how much I liked some of the earlier 
the earlier stuff yeah. and, and what opportunities there were to, to, to work in fields other than opera there. Sure. Um, and, and then yeah, I guess, the rest is kind of history. Yeah, <laughs> after the undergrad, I moved to London because it's where the work was with a vague view of going back to college for an opera school later on. But sure. a few years in, just decided, actually, I know I like what I'm doing. I don't, don't think I want to do that. So. That's amazing. That's yeah. so great. And I feel like that's really similar to to a lot of of the university vocal professor mentality over here too, is that mm -hmm. the professional choir world, the, the states are so interesting because you have all these pro or semi-pro choirs in some of these big cities. Yeah. They're not, it's not like this, well, it's kind of, if you're in the choir world, it's this national phenomenon. But yeah. but but vocal performance majors aren't trying to get there. And faculty, the choral faculty and the voice faculty often kind of butt heads about. Yeah, and, I can imagine. I can imagine. And I I don't know. I I feel it certainly when I mean I was at college a fair while ago now. But when when I was there, I remember thinking it was actually quite an irresponsible attitude for them to have because yeah. if I'm going to make a living out of music then I probably need to be a bit flexible as well so yeah. cast aside the fact that I love I love the choral stuff and the early stuff right. for, a, for, a, for a second just yeah. just practically it, having right. why wouldn't you have skills that can only earn you money within the subject that you're training in yeah it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a funny one a really funny one yeah so wait sorry say that again sorry so I think it's starting to change over here yeah. a couple of colleges have early sure. music departments or consort um setups going on now but yeah. yeah yeah that's amazing and I so so I guess to kind of follow up on that when, when you talk about your voice being flexible and being able to sing in a choral setting versus an opera setting versus a consort setting you know um what are some things I guess physically that or mentally that you do to adjust in those different situations just with your voice or with with how you approach the notes on the page when you're in a larger ensemble versus a small consort versus like an opera stage okay I think how I approach the notes on the page irrespective of what era they're from I, I think I'm always led by text and led by harmony yeah I think in terms of the, the size of the group um the smaller the group the more individual responsibility there is and the more freedom there is to interpret it as as you want to yeah. in terms of the early early music stuff within this uh, the consort stuff or or solo stuff within that sure era, yeah I think that the differences for me will be um well straight tone is the obvious the obvious one isn't it um right. and it really it, it I, I think it's a matter of personal taste to be honest yeah. I mean if you listen to some, somebody like Tenebrae singing um the Victoria Requiem right here it's essentially straight tone the entire way through right. and that's Nigel's interpretation of it and I think it's very beautiful right if you right. listen to um trying to think um with if Adelini was the other one you wanted to talk about okay. some of the some of the I think partly because when I sing early music with them, it tends to be one per part. Right, it's right. much more soloistic. Um, and some of it's really full, really, really full-blooded actually. Yeah. There's a project with them maybe five years ago, six years ago, um, it was called Betrayal, a, a polyphonic crime drama. And like so much of Fagellini's stuff, it, was, it wasn't just sung, it was, it was staged. We were all, it was a singer paired with a dancer and it was based yeah. on a relationship. 
gone wrong um and it well i ended up killing my dancer hitting me over the head with the hammer i shouldn't laugh it wasn't a funny piece <laughs> and then killing myself so it was pretty pretty miserable um <laughs> and in uh, some of the singing that, that was going on within that project from all six of us would would not have been out of place on an operatic stage yeah, in big well. big angry moments there was some really really big singing going on yeah. that's it there were other moments, um, and Robert is brilliant about being led by the score as well. There were there were other moments. If if there's a dissonance um, within early music, uh, well, vibrato by definition is a fluctuation of pitch, isn't it? Right. And so dissonance will be heard more clearly. Uh, the ear will register it more if you go for something straighter to to yeah. jar more with 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 the person that you're clashing with. Yeah. So there would be moments of straight singing within a project like that because the score dictated it there would also be moments of straight singing um because the text dictated it if the text was about pain or something you might choose to sing it very in a very straight way i guess that's how i approach it if i'm doing it soloistically as well i i, I rarely sing solo stuff entirely straight sure. although i've recently done a lot of recording of some bird in that way because that's what the um the director wanted and yeah. And it, and it and it yeah is it's a collaboration. I'm always willing to be guided by what the person in charge wants. <laughs> right, um, right. But it yeah it it. I suppose it's for me. It's always about responding to the text, responding to the harmony, and responding to your colleagues. Yeah. Because one of the things that I think uh, differentiate the, the different groups, as I said, if you listen to Tenebrae, you'll get very straight early stuff if you listen to the talis scholars you'll get very straight early stuff if you yeah, listen to more if that's possible right? yeah yeah if fagellini or um ensemble plus ultra another one per part yeah. group i work with it can be a bit a bit sort of fuller so it's it's about responding to your to your colleagues as well as what's on the page i think yeah that's fascinating and i i think there's such uh you know again that's that that straight tone versus vibrato um kind of thing is one of those where the choral directors and the voice teachers would tend to, you know, do this. And, but there's oh, yeah. totally a way to, to uh, one of the best vocal pedagogues that I know, I've done a interview with her, her name's Jamie Rhodes uh, over here in the States. And she talks about uh, singing with a, a, cl a clean sound versus a straight sound. She taught, and, and it, it's totally healthy. So yeah. what do you, uh, you know, this might be too technical, but maybe not. I don't know. But when you're singing straight, how do you keep your like or uh, yeah, straight tone or whatever? How do you keep yourself from like wearing out as fast? Since that sometimes can be done really yeah, healthily, right? A very good question. <laughs> and the answer is I don't always manage it. <laughs> if it's something that's, um, that's very, very sustained straight stuff, it's particularly in the middle of my voice for a very long time. I, I can I can struggle with that. You know, different right. voices, I think, have different amounts of sure. natural vibrato in them anyway. If I'm left to my own devices, there's a fair bit in mine. Um, right. And so it, it does take some thinking about how to do it, how to do it sensibly, uh, how to do it healthily. Um, yeah. For me, the... The thing I'm always, the thing I always want to avoid is um, tension. Yeah. And tying yourself in knots with tension. Um, and so I guess there are just a few things I'll, I'll keep an eye out for. Like if I, if I, um, I guess I'm just constantly trying to diagnose what I'm doing to work out what I, 
what I might what I could do better <laughs> so sure. for example if I'm doing a, a, a project that involves lots of straight stuff and I find that I that I seem to need to I feel I need to swallow quite a lot that that tells me that there's some tongue root tension going on yeah. so I'll take a moment just to um well I'll leave the tip of my tongue <laughs> behind the bottom teeth but just stick my tongue out it's not an attractive face yeah. sorry but it's, you know, oh, yeah, quite, yeah. within, within a rehearsal it's a split second the conductor probably won't even notice I've just kind of thought about bringing it to, to, to relax it out of that kind of back yeah. space, right? Yeah, if I'm feeling lots of tension at neck level, um, I will start to uh, kind of draw teeny tiny figures of eight with my nose. They'll be so small that you probably wouldn't even notice I was moving. But, you know, you know there are little tricks I'll try within, awesome. within rehearsals to try and make sure I'm keeping everything nice and free. Yeah. Um, oh, I that's super also, helpful. Great. I, I mean, also, if... I know what's likely to tie me in knots. And, and for, for yeah. me, the thing I find the hardest is straight tone in the middle of the voice. That's when I, I my larynx might end up raising and I might actually end up losing a bit of, um, a bit off the bottom of my register, which given that people often put me down with the tenor, it is not, not helpful. Um, <laughs> so in, in break, I'll, tr I'll try and bring it down. I'll, I'll um, just with some vocal fry, just an sure. uh, sound or just some zing and zing to try and bring things back down. But yeah. I mean, I suppose they're, they're kind of firefighting things. They're the tricks I've right. got for, for when things have gone wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, but those are, because that's, I think, the, the hardest thing for young singers because the sensations are so subtle. And I, yeah. I, grew, up, I grew up as an athlete. Um, I, I'm kind of a peculiar, odd person in the fact that I, I play ice hockey twice a week and then I conduct choir and oh it's impressive having time of, for sport and music great both of my, yeah. both of my worlds are like wait you teach choir and then my choir students like wait you play hockey I'm like yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> but great why not <laughs> I'm used to but because of that I'm used to like I have this kinesthetic sense of I'm really good at okay well I need to move my feet or my arm this way but they're yeah. really big muscles and so yeah. when I was growing up I was like making all these massive adjustments, but it's so small. So I think yeah. for some of these students that do sports or, or dance or something like that, it's so hard to get used to that really small sensation. And so those little tools you mentioned are really yeah. awesome because it just a little diagnosis to always be aware of. I think that's great. Yeah, great. And I, and I think, I think also it's about being aware that, that often, um, some of the sounds that we're asked to make in in choral situations are, are, are not how not the sounds that we would make um if we're doing practice as a solo singer right. and so i think it's always about it's about it's about compromise and it's about um working out what's comfortable for you and what's not and i'm i'm always of the opinion that if if the um if the musical standard if, if i think that what i'm being asked the sound i'm being asked to create whilst it's not always necessarily the most naturally easy for me right. if it going to serve the music and 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 be rewarding with the outcome then i'm then i'm willing to find ways to try and do it healthily yeah i think it's also worth remembering for especially for young singers that that um that you know we're all made up slightly differently aren't we and and yeah. also we're all our voices all do different things naturally and so what's an easy sound for one singer to create is not for another yeah and i think i always Various conductors that I work with will offer offer technical advice yeah. on how to how to create the sound that they're after. Sometimes I find it really helpful, and I, I won't. I'm not going to name names, but sometimes oh, yeah, I don't find it helpful. But but what I but 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 the thing that I 
that I will take for it if it's the second. If I think, well, if I do what you just asked me to, I know that will cause me tension, so that's not going to work for me. Right. But hang on, what sound is it that you're after? What, what yeah. What's the end game here? What do you want me to try and create? And how can I do that in a way that won't tie me in knots? Yeah. It's about, it, it take, I think it does take years yeah. of working out, <laughs> getting used to your voice and working out what, what you can and can't require of it. And, you know, there are certain people that, that I know need a sound for their ensembles that isn't that I might admire other people doing but but doesn't sit right. particularly happily with me so you right. you work out where you fit who you like working with yeah. and where you don't fit you might hugely admire their music but it's just right you know or recommend other puzzle pieces yeah. yeah 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 absolutely so I that oh man that's super interesting that I had a thought just a second ago too about when you're you're looking at the music in a particular project and you notice that it's kind of in the middle of your range. Mm -hmm. um, everyone here in America just like ev looks at all of you UK people and be like, you've always been able to sight read every note perfectly. The minute you get it, it's the time you were birthed, you know, <laughs> like that's like, that's like our, our kind of point of view. But having not grown up as a chorister, how, yeah, do, yeah. how does, because I, I know some voice teachers who tell their students, like, don't try to sight read. Like, let really? the, you gotta, like, you, you know, let the music sit in your voice, like, kind of work it out. So that way you can get it in your voice and you're singing with your technique always. Mm. You can't think of the pitches and think of the technique. One of them has to be muscle memory. And yeah, so that's... how do you kind of navigate that? having not been a chorister was yeah that's really interesting to me actually and, and actually um if I may say so it shows up one of the flaws in the system over here I think sure. I think um <clears throat> I think the tradition you, you're right um because there are so many cathedral choirs plenty of people well actually to be honest, it's a very small minority of people in the UK that grow up in that tradition. But th but those that did, of course, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, can read like machines without thinking about it. Um, and it's led to a, a a culture of short rehearsals yeah. over here, which ob obviously that has its benefits. It means it means that projects don't necessarily cost as much because you can have right. fewer rehearsals. But I don't think that's necessarily a good thing because it means you don't necessarily manage to get inside the piece and then have it in the muscle memory, as you say. It's, yeah. I suppose that's really interesting to hear what singing teachers over there are saying. I mean, with my with my my students, they're only, they're only young, they're 11 to 18, but with my students, when I'm doing sight reading with them, um, I think it's, I, I, I make a point of trying to get them to read because awesome. uh, even, if, even if they're not, well, I just think it, it's a really useful skill if you if you end up wanting yeah. to go into the industry and it enables kind of um independent study much better as well doesn't it yeah. so it's useful oh, yeah. but but with with my kids i'm forever telling them that when they're sight reading it it actually gives me a really good idea of what technical stuff has gone into the point that it just happens automatically because yeah. we yeah you're right. well, of course when you when you're thinking okay what what note is that your 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 brain isn't entirely focused on on <laughs> what the what the meaning of the text is or how you're producing the sound and and right. and for the best possible performances they're the ones where all that stuff is just yeah absolutely ingrained in you so right 
I think I think from I think actually my my violin playing helped with my sight reading in the end because I didn't like I said I wasn't a chorister but because you have to think about where you put your your finger on the on the on the on the instrument I mean I'm a, I'm a terrible string player nowadays I, I haven't touched it for years really even even in lockdown I've barely got them out of the case but right. but you have to think you have to be able to hear the sound that you're the note that you're aiming at and yeah. um it was it was a struggle for me I I, I it took yeah I, I'm just I'm, doing it a ton I'm sure but it but it's the same yeah. I don't know I just think that's super interesting too and in that when you said that you have in your student sight read I don't know if I've I, did, I, I took private lesson singing lessons for like one year in high school. Mm. Uh, but then I, I only did it as part of my required study at university. Um, and then I, I haven't, I had taken a couple of like vocal coaching lessons since, but I, have, I don't think I've ever had a voice teacher do any sight reading anything with me ever. Okay, interesting. It's all been, and maybe that's because at university we were in a sight singing class so like right. w- maybe that's why I'm not sure but I, I think that that's mm-hmm. really beneficial because it teaches you it, it like you said it's a really good indicator of okay what is solidified in your voice yeah. but then it also is. like how are you going to navigate this in a in a the next time you get a piece of music at school or whatever well, like exactly. I mean with my lot yeah. um they don't all do graded exams but over here the ABRSM exams have a sight reading section yeah. is only worth a few marks but so we touch on it for that reason but also if you are considering going into singing um if you have to pay a coach every time you need to learn some music that's right. you know add up cost wise isn't it yeah. or even even if um, you know i'm not saying don't listen to recordings of course i'm saying go away and listen right. to every you can learn so much from listening to other people's recordings but yeah but sometimes you might want to just put your own stamp on it first and I, I don't know it's it's well if, if I couldn't sight read I I would not be able to make a living over here so it's it's yeah yeah it's especially <laughs> like you said the rehearsal times are so short that yeah know. but I think that I do think that's a fault in the British system I don't I don't think it's right to get away with as little as we often do yeah. um because I don't think it creates necessarily the best best um best results the best the best concerts are always the ones where either you've got a, a, a big tour of it, so you really are immersed in, in the music, or yeah. something like the um, Fagellini Gesualdo thing, where it's staged, so you know it absolutely backwards before you start. Um, right. Yeah, I think being as close to memorized with a score is always going to create the yeah. best result. Yeah, and I, yeah, that's such an interesting thing, too, because there's a whole that the, the US professional choral tradition is, is really similar, where it's like, you know <laughs> how much rehearsal time can we afford and so you yeah. do it with music versus the school setting where I mean I get I get these students for every other day for a whole school year like everything's memorized well yeah not not even intentionally it's just because we it's rehearse it so much and so and even in university so there's that like the university which is not connected to a cathedral tradition almost ever I don't I can't think of you know maybe some of the schools back east towards the east coast but then and then you go immediately into the pro singing world and it's like okay now we don't rehearse like at all and you read your music and everyone's like what the like they're trying to, yeah. trying to navigate that I think that's super uh, a really interesting thing to think about but I agree that letting the music settle creates a better performance 
regardless of just singing technique. You can, you can tell, right, when the singers have that connection because they communicate it in a different way. And Yeah, no, you absolutely can. And you're inside the text as well as the music and yeah. Yeah. So um, wait, say that again. Rehearsal time is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But <laughs> oh man. Um, so I have a, okay. To shift gears a little bit. I, I was, um, well, actually when you, let's see, I got my list of questions here. Let me just make sure that I'm, I'm getting to, I don't want to skip some of the good ones. <laughs> um, Okay, got that one, I got that one. Um, oh, okay, so when you said that when you were becoming, like you know, getting towards the university age that you started to love, kind of fall in love with the earlier music stuff and things like that, what are some, I guess now, what are some of your favorite things to sing and why? Whether it's uh, so contemporary, early, ensemble any of it uh, the whole gambit <laughs> to be honest it entirely depends on my mood which is not helpful is it no, i no, i love totally helpful i think yeah. that's great <laughs> <laughs> i mean in a in a one per part consort kind of way then the Gesualdo and Monteverdi type stuff i i adore all the kind of drama involved in that and and yeah. the sort of the freedom of being really individualistic with it yeah um in a, in a solo singing kind of way, it's often, actually, it's often some of the, what I'm really missing doing this year are things like the, the mezzo solos and the Verdi Requiem and Elgar Dream of Garanti. It's like, that's a long way from early music, isn't it? But, but it, but I, <laughs> but that's okay. And that but, um, might be your voice type, you know, to, to just like, you know, like let yeah. it run free, right? <laughs> exactly. And I think I think it's also just the feeling that we've all been silenced for so long. I want to yeah. go out, get out there and sing some pieces where you can just let rip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I guess that if if I, the person, the composer, I will never ever ever tire of and always want to come back to is is Bach, um, which is probably plenty of musicians' answers. But I just think yeah. he he kind of he perfectly expresses every. Yeah every emotion that there is so whether it's something like the pure joy in the opposite for a locket from christmas oratorio or all the yeah. kind of pleading and angst in a barmadish or yeah I, I i will always 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 come back to bach <laughs> that's awesome i think i think you're right and for good reason because again he's shaped pretty much everything in in yeah. Western music right so yeah that's really cool um kind of uh, to back, piggyback off of that, when I was talking to Owen Park, I asked him about like, you know, when he was a chorister, you know, would he approach an early music piece? What does he do differently? And he mm -hmm. kind of said this, that really interesting thing that I sent in my email where he's like, I didn't think of it mm -hmm. as early because we just thought of it as like, oh, this is this person and this is this person. Mm -hmm. And it was all, it's all kind of, because Britain has such a unique choral heritage that I think is so rich and amazing over here it's like whoa that is ancient stuff and yeah. then have the modern stuff is what is that kind of mindset for you do you how do you kind of view those two worlds like dead composers versus alive composers or do you kind of see it as a seamless thing and what makes it that way um well I suppose 
I suppose not having been a chorister and, and having come sure. to the choral tradition much later, I, I got my first church job when I moved to London at, at 23. Um, yeah. I, 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 he took a real gamble on me. I, I, I could sight read, but I didn't know much of the <laughs> stuff that you're supposed to know at all. And it wasn't <laughs> until he'd, he'd given me the job, actually, that I rocked up at St. Bart's and sang even song and I saw pointing of a psalm with the lines and the dots and I had absolutely no idea what yeah. any of it meant so I'm sure he regretted having appointed me at that point but, <laughs> but no I, I suppose I suppose because I came to all of that sort of stuff a little bit later I, I it has always been obvious to me that they're from kind of different different worlds yeah. in terms of the sound world again coming to it all a bit later I suppose if, if Owen was a chorister he'll have he was at Wells, wasn't he? So he'd have been, what, eight? I, I suppose when I really got started sit, singing um, early music in a, in a more serious way, yeah. But the big difference, I think, is something that I suppose Robert Hollingworth mostly introduced me to, which is, and not all the groups do it when they're doing it, but he does, is using just intonation, using a different kind of tuning scheme. So uh, major thirds are a bit lower, minor thirds are a bit higher. Basically, if it looks high, it should be low. If it looks low, it should be high. You end up kind of feeling it, rather, or I end up kind of feeling it, rather than thinking right. technically, but a slightly different tuning scheme. I'm not going to sit here and try and talk about the physics of it, but if, if any of your listeners want to, then if you go to his... Um, He's done a YouTube series called Sing the Score. He Fagellini Sing the Score. And number seven talks about this tuning stuff in great detail if people right. want to. Yeah, I'll put that definitely. in the show notes. That's yeah. Great. That's great. Yeah, but I but so I suppose the, 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 the tuning of some of the early stuff I might I think about in a different way, having come to it a lot later than Owen. Sure. But the, the thing that, that joins it all together for me is as I said earlier, I'm I, I'm just always led by the, the text and the harmony and and the sounds going on around you. Um you, I think. I, I sing very differently depending on who my colleagues are and who's out right. front. Yeah, I yeah, that's great. And I would be fascinated to to hear why. And again, I, I because I grew up as an athlete, I kind of live in that academic world. And also, like my dad is and my mom are not musicians. I didn't grow up in a musical house. Yeah. My dad's always like, quit singing in different, just sing in English. Like that's what my dad always <laughs> says when it comes to my concerts. Fair enough. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I kind of come at it from both perspectives, but from a non, it does, so it doesn't have to be super academic, but what, why do you th think that there's different, you would tune it differently for early music as opposed to contemporary? What about the time period? Or is it just about, yeah, I'm just curious as to why you think it that has to would... do with the development of the keyboard and tuning mm -hmm. semitones evenly. Yeah. Um, again, Robert will explain it so much better than me. So, oh, that's fine. That's <laughs> but, great. But, it, but it's just going back to the kind of tuning that they would have been used to at the at the time, mm -hmm. and and it, it colours things differently as well. I think sure. it's it's been really interesting for me coming to it later to yeah. to explore it. Um, yeah, so to tr trying to get it to be accurate, to, um, a little bit more kind of yeah. accurate to what they would have been used to, and, and yeah, exactly. I think I think some historical stuff is always interesting to um, whether it's to do with tuning or, or just kind of historical context. If you're if you're if right. I don't know if, if I'm singing some bird who we know that was sort of Catholic in a very Protestant country you know they're, they're right. looking at what uh, being able to put things in a bit of context can often be very useful as well just knowing yeah. what's why things are written how things are written right whether they'll be right. secret or performed or, or yeah <laughs> yeah that's great um well that uh 
my last question is if you were to give like a conductor and I, you maybe have kind of touched on this, but a more direct answer to if, if a conductor, there's a young conductor, including myself, what advice would you give for like any advice on, from a singer's perspective, what makes singing in a specific conductor's ensemble super rewarding and makes you want to come back to their projects? Um, I think the first thing that you expect of your conductor is that they obviously know the music inside out and have have their own interpretation in mind. Yeah. Um, but I think the things that, that make me want to come back to work with somebody again and again are... Um, it's, possibly not really a musical answer but I think it does enable no, the most great. the best music making but it, it, creating an atmosphere where people feel kind of safe to give their best and to, and to try things out creating a, a, a kind of safe and happy atmosphere for people to work in um and I don't know if with small with smaller groups if it's a bit collaborative that's great bouncing ideas off each other yeah. um but, it, but it's also it's also about I think I said earlier, I referred to sort of which jigsaw pieces you use to put the puzzle together, choosing choosing the singers that all work together. It's it's creating the, an atmosphere that will enable people to do their best singing and their best music making, I think is the is the thing yeah. I value the most. Yeah. And what 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 does that look like? I guess as I get I'm I'm a as a teacher, I like to dig deeper and ask follow-ups. What, yeah. do what does that look like exactly to, it, for you personally? To, when you, when you, what, what do they do that makes you feel enabled to, to take chances and to collaborate and to kind of do your best? Um, I, think, I think feeling safe that if I do something that they don't like, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> um, yeah. and, you know, can sure. try things out without being just kicked out and told it's a load of rubbish. Um, yeah. I think I think also uh, allow. I, I suppose touching on what I was saying earlier on about about giving technical advice. Technical advice. I think I also I always appreciate people that will um, give me a little bit of time to work out mm. how I can do what they want. In a way that's going to work for them and for me. Yeah, so yeah. That, that allow a bit of a bit of time for me to mull over. Right, hang on. What exactly is it? What what sound do they need, and yeah. how can I give that to them in a way that's going to work for both of us? Yeah. So being being allowed um, time goes back to the, the luxury we don't always have, but being allowed some time to to experiment to get okay. things right. Um, yeah. And also people that are that are clear when I'm doing things that they don't like you right. know, it's, it's, I think it's being being direct is exactly what you want as a singer really because I think we all want to we all want to be able to deliver what it is you're after right if, right. if you're not doing it telling us in a in a kind of gentle and constructive way is also really useful <laughs> <laughs> yeah instead of just kind of altos think about clouds more and then like, yeah. What? <laughs> right yeah right. or just not booking me again you know thinking that was no good <laughs> rather than trying to get me to do what they want just giving up yeah yeah it's, and and just just somebody that's gonna inspire us to, to to do our best somebody that's really the more fired up you are about the music making the more fired up we're gonna be about the music making. yeah i think it's awesome 
Well, Martha, thank you again so much for taking the time. I, I've loved this. This has been really fun. And I, I think you're really down to earth and, and really great. So, um, I show all my students the the drowned lovers recording and I'm like Alto, oh nice Altos you need to if you want to make money sing <laughs> be like That's, this lady <laughs> great piece that one really great piece. Thanks for joining on Early Music Monday. Hopefully Bach didn't put you to sleep. Man, not that Bach. That's not the Bach that I grew up learning about. Freaking sword-dueling Zorro Bach. Straight out of a gang. And I hope when you listen to Bach's music, you think about it differently now. And that it means something slightly different. And that you can connect it to your own life. And I hope you enjoyed our interview with Martha and felt kind of her perspective on things and understood what the life of a professional singer is like and got to feel like kind of what a good person she is as well. Please like and subscribe. Write us a review. Those things are really helpful. Help me make it not so boring. And it really helps us out with the algorithms. Make sure you check out soundofageschoir.com and see all the things we have coming up. We have a concert coming up on May 10th that we'll talk about in a future episode. And the Andrew special coming up next week. Andrew special round two. And if I know Andrew, it's going to be boppity. So we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday.